I'd like to greet you this morning. It's the words of Psalm 91, first two verses. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. My prayer again is that this, our worship experience this weekend, these several meetings we're having, will be that where we find the secret place of the Most High. That secret, special place where it's us and God relating and being together, finding peace and rest, finding solutions for the issues in our lives. <clears throat> God has answers for us. And He wants us to seek for those answers. And He wants to give us those answers. Um, and as we seek to live, to be in that secret place with Him, He will minister to us. And I just... My prayer is that that will be all of our experience this weekend. <clears throat> I'd like to share this morning on, I'm titling it this way, The Way of Healing, Reconciliation, and Restoration. I'd like to look at three different passages of Scripture this morning. First of all, 2 Samuel 24, and then in Matthew 6, and then Galatians 6, relating to these three areas, the way of healing, reconciliation, and restoration. God has called us to be reconcilers, healers, restorers of the breach. He's called us to ministry in those ways, in those areas. And I'm, as I'm talking with you all and learning to know you, it's a joy to discover how you are reaching out to each other here and to people in this community. You have, uh, you have a calling there, and I appreciate how you're fulfilling that calling, and I want to encourage you to continue doing that. We live in a world that is full of hurting people, people that have, uh, we talked about it some last evening again this morning, people that have deep hurts, Emotional baggage, you know, because of divorce and remarriage and, and uh, fathers in prison and there's just all kinds of, of hurts and, and problems and difficulties in our world today. We have the good news. We have the opportunity. We have, we have the answers. We have God's word that teaches us and shows us the way to live and how to move forward in our, in our lives and and we have the, the blessed opportunity of giving this to people and sharing it with others. So I hope this morning can be an encouragement for us in these areas, the way of healing, reconciliation, and restoration. In 2 Samuel 24, I think I'd like to read this chapter in its entirety, and I invite you just to follow along. <clears throat> this is a uh, chapter in David's life, toward the end of his life, one of the less admirable, admirable chapters of David's life, and yet it's a chapter what we can learn a lot from. 2 Samuel 24, it says, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved against David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, an hundredfold, that the eyes of my 
of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notice that word delight. Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Aroer on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river of Gad and toward Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi, and they came to Danjean and, and about to Zidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done, and now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto the king, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in, in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arana the Jebusite, and David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and my against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Remember our discussion on altars last evening? And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arana said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arana said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be the oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of oxen for wood. All these things did Arana, as a king, give unto the king. And Arana said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Arana, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered him burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated from the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. In this chapter of David's life, he uh, didn't do as he knew he should have. This act of disobedience was a deliberate choice in his part, even though Joab tried to dissuade him from it. Joab uh, tried, to say, uh, tried to tell him that the Lord give you all you want and more besides. 
There was uh, a law, a, a uh, clause in the law where the kings were not allowed to know how many soldiers they had. Uh, that was, they were supposed to trust in the Lord and not in their own uh, ability or their own power, their own management and so on. They were supposed to completely trust in the Lord. And so numbering the Israelites here, numbering the soldiers, see how many big an army, how big of an army he had, was an act of disobedience against God and David's part. And Joab pointed that out, to, or tried to point that out to David, but he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. Joab said to the, to the king, to David, why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? There's something about this that pleased David's carnality. He uh, probably boosted his ego to know how many soldiers he had. He had a lot. One, see, 500 and 800, that's 1.3 million men. That's a lot of soldiers. It's a lot of power. Uh, no doubt it would have been one of the strongest, perhaps the strongest army of its, time, of its kind in the day. And he was, he was king of a very large block of land, at least as far as Israel is concerned. His, his kingdom went all the way from the uh, Nile River in Egypt and went over to, uh, it touched the, the, the Red Sea in Beersheba in southern Israel. And it was on the east side of Jordan, where the country of Jordan is today. The land of Gilead was there. And it would have included the Golan Heights, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, and went all the way to the Tigris River, uh, where, where Damascus is. He had a garrison in Damascus. And so he had, he had uh, a very large uh, portion of land that he called his own and controlled. And, and so to know that he had a million, 1.3 million soldiers at his command would have been an ego boost, boost for him, I guess. And, and I don't know what his reasons were, but... Uh, I noticed that word delight there. Joab asked him, why do you delight in this thing? It, was, it brought him pleasure to think of this, uh, this, uh, all these, this strength, this military strength he had. <clears throat> but it was wrong. It was wrong. But because he was king and Joab was not the king, Joab had to go do what the king said. And so he did. He and his captains went throughout the land of Israel. It took him a year and nine months. That was quite a project. And I notice in the book of Second Chronicles, which is the parallel chapter to this, uh, Joab was so um, galled at this project that he deliberately didn't count all the Israelites. He, he failed to count the tribe of Levi, and he didn't count all the tribe of Judah either. He, he deliberately did not completely obey the, David, uh, the king's commandment. However, he carried it out to David's satisfaction. And so... Jab came back and delivered up the number in verse 9 there. And then it says in verse 10, David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And I don't know just how that worked. The Holy Spirit wasn't in David's heart then. He wasn't in, in, present in people's lives like the Holy Spirit is present in our life today. And yet God had a way of speaking to David and he felt guilty. It says his heart smote him for what he had done. <clears throat> And so David did, as he did some other times, he wanted to repent. <clears throat> uh, I want to back up here in verse 1. It gives us a tiny glimpse here of, of the unseen world. Uh, 
And God intense, intentionally has shrouded the unseen world in mystery for us. We know that there's angels. We know that Satan is an angel and moves about like an angel. He has the limitations of an angel. He isn't divine. He cannot create. But we know that he and his demons, his fallen angels, are very active in the unseen world. And we know that there's constant spiritual warfare going on between the angels of darkness and the angels of light. We have glimpses of that. For example, when uh, uh, it says, was it Michael, the archangel, disputed over the body of Moses. And there was, and there was a time when Daniel was praying and it took, uh, the, uh, the, the archangel had to contend with the evil one before he could come to Daniel's, come and answer Daniel's cry. And so there's, there's spiritual warfare going on in the unseen world. Job gives us another glimpse there where God and Satan were in conversation. And it's, it's a mystery. We don't really know exactly how it all was, but we know that there's a lot of things going on in the unseen world. I believe there's angels in this room. And I believe that God is watching and knows exactly what's occurring here. And Satan is watching as well. And so here in verse 1, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It doesn't tell us why, but for some reason, God was, was angry against Israel. And so he moved David in this direction. David made a choice to do it. He was responsible for what he did. And yet uh, God used David's uh, ego, his pride, his, his propensity to do wrong. He used that to bring punishment on Israel. And later on, we see how 70,000 men died. And we say, well, they were innocent victims. They were in a sense, and yet they were not. I think it was God bringing punishment to them through David's, uh, David's sin. But be that as it may, I just wanted to explain a little bit how there is a, there's this unseen activity in the unseen world going on, and we don't really know what's happening, but we know that it's there. It, the Revelation calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He's in front of God accusing, uh, accusing us before God, bringing our faults, our sins before God, and, and rightly pointing out how we deserve to die and we deserve to be punished. It's only through the blood of Jesus that we were washed from our sins, that we're released of our penalty of sin and guilt. It's only through the blood of Jesus that we have any relief at all from the just punishment that we deserve. And Satan is very aware of what we deserve, and so he's eager to bring what we deserve to us. So it's a, but it's only through Jesus that we have relief from that, release from that. And so it's, we need to be grateful for Jesus' role in our lives, not only what he did initially on the cross, but what he's doing for us even today, interceding for us when Satan comes and brings accusation against us and we have repented of our sins, then, then Jesus can say, but that's, that's washed by the blood. No, you have no legal right against that person. And so Jesus plays a very vital role for us today. and we, We're grateful for that. We're very thankful for that. <clears throat> But we see here just a tiny glimpse into the unseen world there in verse 1. And so we have this, this situation now where David, David is guilt-smitten because of what he's done. And so he prays, he says, I've sinned greatly in that I have done, and I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. And sin, as you know, must be punished. It cannot go unanswered. And what is the punishment for sin? Can someone tell me? Death. And what has to be shed? Blood. In the Old Testament, they used the blood of animals 
and God said that's good enough for now. But it wasn't until the blood of Jesus was shed that the price was really paid. The blood of animals was just a covering and put off the final judgment, the final payment. But when the blood of Jesus was shed, that completely and finally and fully paid the price of our sins. And so when David committed sins here, there had to be an answer. There had to be a punishment for it. There had to be blood shed in order to pay his sin. And so in verse 12, the prophet, the seer, came to David and offered him three things and what choices they were. God in his mercy allowed David a choice. Many times we don't have a choice, do we? When we sin, there is a punishment and we don't get to choose our punishment. In this case, David did get to choose his punishment, but they really weren't much of a choice as far as, as uh, having relief from punishments concerned. Seven years of famine, three months of running from his enemies, or three days of pestilence. I don't know how that would have felt to have had, had to make that choice, to have that, that, uh, that weight, that responsibility of, of making this choice. There's a lesson for us to be learned here. David was the leader of his people, and God recognized his authority and leadership. And so when David sinned, David was the one that had to pay as well. And not only did he have to pay, but his nation suffered as well. As I pointed out, I think they suffered for their own sins because of what it says in verse 1. But at the same time, they also suffered because of David's sin. And people in our authority, in our realm of influence and so on, will be impacted by our sins, by our violations of principle and by our selfishness and so on. They will be impacted by our lives in negative ways. And so we need to constantly repent and allow the Holy Spirit to allow the blood of Jesus to cleanse us and the Holy Spirit to fill us and give us his power. So here was David having to make this choice. And I think it was a very heavy choice for him to make. But it's interesting how he reasoned. He said, well, I'm just paraphrasing here a bit. You know, seven months of famine, seven months of weakness in front of other countries and the invitation that would be for other countries to come and pillage them and take advantage of them, that didn't look like a good option. Um, and three months of running from his enemies, he knew well enough what his enemies would love to do to him. He had many a, many a victory over his enemies, and they had many a score to settle with him. At one point, he, uh, when he conquered the Moabites, uh, because of their... Rebellion and so on uh, normally would have been uh, annihilation. He would have slaughtered them all, but it says he made three lines. Two lines he slaughtered and one line he saved. In other words, it was an act of mercy in his part to not kill all of them. So he had a, he, and that was just one example of, of how he treated his enemies. And that was under God's direction. I'm not criticizing him for that. In the Old Testament, that was, that was what God directed them to do. And so he was fulfilling God's direction and will. But at the same time, we have to recognize David had many enemies and they would have just loved to settle a few scores with him. And three months of that, he knew there'd be no mercy at their hands. He knew there'd be no mercy whatsoever. But he says in verse 14, let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great. And what a blessing that is. It tells us in Lamentations that God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning they're new. Now God's love is unconditional. God loves everyone all the same, irregardless 
in whatever case or situation, God's love is constant and is always there. His mercy, however, is conditional. Why does God extend mercy to some people and not to others? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I have often asked myself when I was interacting with people in poor areas or people were areas where there was a lot of injustice. And why wasn't I one of those children born to one of those families? I don't know why I wasn't. Why was I born in America to parents that loved me and cared for me? You know, why do I have all the advantages that I have? I don't know. I don't deserve any of them. It's simply God's mercy that has granted that to me. And his mercy is, is uh, not based on anything I have done. It's simply at God's discretion. And mercy, God's mercy isn't extended the same to all. That looks like injustice to us sometimes. Why does God show mercy to some and not to others? I don't know. We can't answer that. But we leave it in God's hands. He's sovereign. He knows best. And we submit to him and trust him. Uh, and so God's mercy isn't like God's love. God's love is unconditional, but his mercy is conditional. And in this case, <clears throat> David said, let me fall into the hands, into the mercies of God. His, into the hands of God, his mercies are great. And so uh, God allowed David that choice, and David made the choice. And so it says in verse 15, the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed, three days. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. That's a lot of people. Now I'm curious, I don't know what the population of this area is, but if 70,000 people would die in this county, what county is this? Campbell County. If 70,000 people would die in Campbell County, how many people would be left? I have no idea. But it, imagine the impact that that would make. The land of Israel isn't that big. According to the map, you can get from north to south in, well, several hours of driving. It doesn't take that long to drive from one, one point to the other, from north to south, and east to west, it's even shorter. The land of Israel isn't that large. And 70,000 people dying in the land of Israel in that small geographical region had to have a huge impact. And I don't know what the population of Israel was at this time, but 70,000 was a significant percentage of the population. It had to be. So just imagine 70,000 funerals in three days. Think of all the orphans, the widows, the sons, uh, the, the mothers grieving for their sons. Just, just think of it. Just, just try to imagine that. It's, it's beyond my capability of even comprehending it. I can't wrap my mind around the impact that had to have. Three days of 70,000 deaths and all those funerals. I just can't imagine. <clears throat> and I'm sure David, according to his own testimony here, he was smitten. He was, he was just so sad. Because he said, Oh, by the way, in verse 16, it says the angel of the Lord was standing over Jerusalem, ready to bring destruction on his own beloved city of Jerusalem. And God, it says, he repented him of the evil. And he looked down and saw, these, saw all these deaths, and he saw all this sorrow and grieving, and he saw what was going to happen to Jerusalem. He said to the angel, stop, hold it, it's enough. Stay your hand. And the angel was standing, it says, on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. That's a significant spot. Do you have any idea 
what happened at that very spot centuries before. Yes, that was the very spot that Abraham had offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. The angel standing on that very spot. And the angel, and, and God stayed the hand of the angel there, and then David was told to go out and offer a sacrifice on that very spot. And that's later where Solomon built the temple. Very significant spot in God's uh, economy or in, in the land of Israel and how God was dealing with his people. So here was this angel. And David, David saw all that happened. He was so sad. He said, uh, he said, Lo, I have sinned. And he was right. He had sinned. He was exactly right. I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? He felt so sad for what he had caused to happen there. Uh, Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. And I think God saw his humility. He saw his repentance. He saw his desire to do what was right, even though he had done wrong and sinned. And God honored his heart. He honored his desire to, to change and repent. And so it says, Gad came that day to David and said, Go up and rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. And so David went up as the Lord commanded. Significant here how David was obedient. Without any hesitation, he was ready to do whatever God asked him to do. And Aaron here was there with his sons. According to Second Chronicles, when they saw the angel, they ran and hid. They were frightened. And no doubt they were afraid that they were going to be killed. But when they saw King David coming here, then it says they came out and bowed themselves in front of the, on, on the ground in front of them. He was an honorable man. He loved his king. He was loyal to him. And he honored his king. And he was, uh, I think, a righteous, uh, holy man. And very honorable. And so David came to him. And, and Arana wondered, what, what's on your mind? What's going on? What would you like? And, and David said, I want to buy your threshing floor so I can build an altar there. And Arana was an honorable man. He said, don't buy it from me. I'll just give it to you. He was, he was ready to do whatever he could to help David out, to just bless him. And not, not that David needed it. He would have been a wealthy man himself because he was a king. But Arana wanted to just honor him and bless him and give him these gifts. He said, take, take my cattle, my bullocks here, his cows, take them for your, your offering and take the threshing instruments for the wood and just, just take it. Take the floor. It's yours. And, but David says something very significant here. And this relates to building an altar. He really does. Did you catch it there in uh, verse 24? What did David say to, to Arana that's significant here? What did he say? That's right. What does that teach us, brother? What does that teach us about our altars? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The altars that we build have to cost us something. We can't offer anybody else's resources on our altars. It has to be our own resources, our own whatever it is. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember what? The altar cost him there. He said, not my will, but thine be done. It cost him his will. It cost him everything. He said, God, if it's possible, 
can we do this some other way? But the answer was, no, there is no other way. Jesus wanted to do it some other way if it was possible. In his human humanness, he, he wanted to do it some other way. And God said, no, it's not possible. It must be this way. And so Jesus yielded his will. He said, not my will, but thine be done. The cross cost Jesus everything he had, everything. And for us to have an altar with God, it has to cost us something as well. David had gotten that principle, and he teaches us by his example here. He said to Arana, he said, no, I'm going to buy it from you. Um, how can I offer to God, the Lord my God, that which doth cost me nothing? If we offer to God what hasn't cost us anything, it's really not an offering. It's really not offering anything to God. It's, it's simply just giving to God what we've been given. But when we give him of our own will, our own self, our own resources, and we give up ourselves, that's what's required for us to have an altar with God. <clears throat> and so David teaches us something very, very important here about, um, about our altars, about worshiping God. It has to cost us something. So David built an altar to the Lord there. And look what he built, what he offered. He offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated and the plague was stayed. Now, when you study the book of Leviticus, there's five offerings, sacrifices that they, they would offer. The first five or six chapters of Leviticus, they would offer a sin offering, a trespass offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering, and a meat offering. And each of those offerings had significance in and of themselves. Two of them, the sin offering and trespass offerings, were offerings for sin. When, uh, the, uh, if I remember right, the, the sin offering had to do with, with acts of sin. Uh, I'm sorry. It had to do with, with things that they, they were capable of doing and probably would do but hadn't done them necessarily. But it had to do because of their sin nature. They, they were, their propensity to sin. But it had to do because of sin. The trespass offering was for specific acts of sin. And I'm not sure how that all was, but uh, not quite clear, but Leviticus doesn't quite detail it for us. But as I, as I understand it, that's how it was. A sin offering, a trespass offering, especially had to do with acts of sin or the sinful nature of, of humans, of, of God's people. And then the other three offerings, the peace offering, the burnt offering, and the meat offering were offerings of worship. Offerings of praise, expressions of thanksgiving. And notice what offerings David offered here in verse 25. What did he offer? Do you notice that? He offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now my question to you is, why did not David offer a sin offering or a trespass offering? Why not? He said, I have sinned. And God said he'd sinned. So why didn't he offer a sin offering? Okay, that's a thought. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, certainly the priest would have had to officiate, I think. Okay, okay. I, I think there's truth there. The blood of 70,000 people was blood enough. Blood had been shed that covered the sin. Didn't pay for it because it wasn't the blood of Jesus, but it was blood nonetheless. And it, it, it covered 
the, uh, the sin. And I, I think that's at least partly why he didn't offer a sin offering or a trespass offering. But it says here he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The burnt offering signified uh, total surrender. The burnt offering was something that they would place in the altar and it would be completely consumed. In, the, in other words, nothing, everything was burnt except all that was left just smoke. Everything went up in smoke. That was the burnt offering. Uh, a picture of that is when, when Joshua led the people into Canaan across, across the Jordan River and their first conquest in the land of Canaan was Jericho. And remember what God said that they were to do with Jericho? Joshua, the book of Joshua tells us they were to utterly destroy it. That meant they were completely, they were to completely annihilate the inhabitants and everything that was in it. They were not allowed to take any bounty or any, any spoils for themselves. Later on, when they conquered cities, they were allowed to keep spoils for themselves. That's how they were paid. But in that first fruits of Canaan, they were to, supposed to completely give it to God, except for some of the, the precious metals and so on that were used in the temple later on. And that was totally God's. And, that's, and when Achan violated that, that's one reason God was so angry with him because, well, for one thing, it was a violation of the tithe. This, this is a, the first fruits of Canaan. It was an expression of the tithe to give the first part to God. But more than that, it was to be a burnt offering to God of total surrender. A burnt offering is something they, they, they would offer as saying, God, I'm just totally giving to you. It's, it's all yours, none of it. It's not mine to enjoy at all. And so the burnt offering was something that was completely burnt and all that was left was just a smoke. Everything was, went up in smoke. So David commit, uh, performed a burnt offering here. And again, it shows us his, uh, his, his submission and dedication and commitment to God. And then the peace offering was a thanksgiving offering where he was thanking God. And so these two offerings together lead us uh, to conclude what David was doing here. He wasn't... He wasn't offering for sin. That was already done. But he was, he was simply offering in worship. He was worshiping God. And there's something significant here that I want to point out. This has to do with healing. The way of healing. When we have experienced pain, we tend to push it away. We don't like it. We don't accept it. We avoid it. If, someone, if a person is causing us pain, we tend to avoid them. If a certain, uh, uh, maybe we've lived in a house that caused us pain, maybe something painful happened in that house, we sell the house and move on somewhere else, we avoid going there. You know, there are circumstances that have caused us pain. We, we, want to, we tend to want to forget them and just put them out of our lives and move on to something else. God's answer to pain isn't avoiding it. God's answer to pain is worship. Worship. Think of the pain of these 70,000 deaths all the orphans, all the widows, all the grieving, all those funerals. And the pain that David was experiencing, he said, God, this is terrible what I have done. These poor sheep, they're innocent. They're, you know, look what I have done to them. And he was in pain. He was suffering. He was in, in sorrow. And God led him to worship. The peace offering and the, the, uh, the burnt offering. God's answer to pain is worship. The way to be healed in our pain is worship. Pain is something we always hope for a termination. We want it to stop. 
Uh, this past week, I punctured my finger and it's still hurting, you know, and I came here this, uh, this weekend. I told my wife, I said, I'm glad to give my hands a two-day rest because they really need it. You know, they're kind of hurting, the, especially the one fingertip here is really sore. It's getting less. And I'm looking forward to the pain being completely gone. And if the pain would just continue on, I'd wonder what's wrong here. Why can't we stop this pain? The reality of our lives is, though, that sometimes we can't stop the pain. Other people, circumstances perhaps, cause us pain that we can't control. And we can't stop it. The pain just keeps going. The source of pain keeps on producing pain. And we can't stop it. So how do we handle that? When other people hurt us. You know, you've always, you all heard preachers and teachers say, well, you need to forgive, right? Yeah, we can forgive. But if the pain keeps coming, what do you do? Well, the answer, Jesus said, you forgive 70 times 7. But it doesn't help the pain, right? The pain is still there. And the question I've had many times through the years was, what do I do with the pain? Yeah, I can forgive, but what do I do with the pain? And one day the Lord showed this to me here. I believe the answer to pain is worship. Worship. Our personal altar. That's where we find healing for our pain. That's where we find grace and strength to forgive, truly forgive, and go on. It's where we find the strength to embrace our pain instead of push it away. It's important that we learn to embrace the pain in our lives, especially pain that keeps on painting, especially pain that keeps on giving. Maybe it's, it's, a, maybe it's a terminal uh, illness that you have. Maybe it's a family member that's suffering terminally, you know, and, and the constant care is, is a stress, it's a strain, it's a pain in a sense. Maybe it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a friend that you had that turned against you and, and you know, the, the knowledge of that is just a constant source of pain. Or, you know, we all have sources of pain. You know what I'm talking about, right? We have sources of pain. What do we do with the pain? We, we need to forgive. That's number one. We need to forgive. Jesus made that clear. We forgive and forgive and forgive. But here I think it teaches us what to do with the pain. We embrace it. By the power of God, we embrace it. And we learn to do that. We get the power to do that at our personal altar. It won't come from ourselves. We won't be able to, to embrace the pain on our own strength. It's only the, the grace of God, the strength of God, that enables us to embrace our pain. An example of that is uh, a Chinese pastor. If you've read the book, The Heavenly Man, I forget his name. Maybe one of, some of you remember the man's name, but the book, The Heavenly Man, is the story of a Chinese pastor and the, some of the persecution and so on he experienced. At one point, he was wanting to leave China and cross the border into Myanmar, uh, what used to be Burma, and minister to and, and share Christ with the tribal people there known as the Karen people. But the authorities in Myanmar would not allow him a visa to enter their country. But his burden for those people was so great, he, he illegally crossed the border. There in, northern, in southern China, northern Myanmar, the border is kind of murky and it's not real clearly defined necessarily in the jungle. So he was able to slip across the border and was actually ministering to the tribes, the, the Karen tribes in northern Myanmar, which is what he wanted to do. However, the authorities caught up with him and took him to the judge. And the judge gave him a seven-year prison sentence in their jails in Myanmar. And I, I'm supposing those, those jails uh, are nothing desirable. I'm supposing that. I haven't seen them, but I'm supposing the seven years in the prison, one of their prisons was not something to look forward to. And yet this pastor, 
And I wish I could remember his name, but I don't. When he was given this sentence of seven years in prison for violating uh, being in the country illegally there, he went to the judge, knelt in front of the judge, and he said to the judge, thank you for giving me a visa for your country for seven years. He embraced the pain. He embraced it. He, enabled, he allowed that pain to make him a more effective witness for Christ. He went to prison. And according to the story, as I understand it, they couldn't handle him in there. He was witnessing for Christ, which is what he wanted to do. He was sharing the gospel. And they, after a year or so, they got rid of him. They didn't want him in prison. <laughs> they, they sent him away. You know, he was such a powerful witness for Christ. But, but he was that because he embraced the pain. Instead of rejecting it, instead of getting depressed and discouraged because of the pain, he embraced it. He allowed that pain to draw him to Christ and make him a more effective witness and soldier for Jesus Christ. And that's what we can learn from David here. David embraced the pain in worship. And that's the answer to pain. That's where we find healing for our pain. God wants us to heal. He recognizes that we have pain. In fact, think of the, some of the worst things that ever happened to you. Think of the pain that you experienced. Do you think God knew all about that? Of course he does. In fact, it tells us, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he knows about these things before we do. How does that make you feel? The, the pain and suffering you've experienced, the, the things that have been difficult for you, before you experienced them, he knew you were going to experience it. That's according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to suffer above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. What that teaches us is when Satan wants to bring difficulty to us or when some difficulty is coming, God has to give his permission to it. Satan has to go and ask God for permission. says, I want to tempt this person. I want to bring this difficulty. Like in Job, I want to bring this difficulty to this person. Will you give me permission? And sometimes God says, no, you don't have my permission to do that. Sometimes God says, yes, you have my permission. And so Satan comes and does whatever he does in our lives against us, seeking to destroy us. And God knows it's going to happen before it hit us. And so when you experience temptation and testing and difficult times, take that as a comfort that God already knows all about it. He knew it was going to happen before you did. He knew you were going to be hit with this thing before you were hit with it. But God in his wisdom allowed it. And God, God knows best. And so we submit him to him and trust him. And we worship him. We simply worship him. <clears throat> I want to share something that I learned from a speaker that has been so helpful to me. Three statements, and this relates to what we're talking about here this morning. I believe that God is able to do whatever I ask him, and so I pray. I believe that God knows best and so I submit to him. I believe that God is in control, and so I trust him. Follow that? I believe that God is able to do whatever I ask him, and so I pray. He wants us to pray. Yeah, pray and ask God. At the same time, I believe that God knows best, and so I submit to him. And I believe that God is in control, and so I trust him. I don't doubt what God does. And so again, I want to remind us, the answer to pain is worship. We find healing in our pain in worship. The way of healing is worship. And there again, that takes us back to our personal altar. How is your personal altar? Is it a living 
vital part of your life? Is it something that happens on the side? Is it something that just, you know, happens on occasion? Or is it, is it the center of your universe? Is it, is it the, the center of your passions? As, as we worship at our personal altar, that's where we find healing for our pain. I think we'll take a break here. You've been a very good audience, and I appreciate your attention. Uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we stand and have a song leader lead us in several songs? You can have a sit again as you, at your discretion. For now, let's stand and, and have some songs. Uh, Gerald said there's an offering, but we'll stand for several songs, then we'll let you sit down take his offering then. Um, since there's only one of me and lots of you, I'll start with one song, and then you're responsible for the rest of the songs from memory, okay? The first song I thought of was, uh, <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. That's probably all of us here have some part of our lives that uh, does not feel whole. It's uh, maybe in pain. And uh, that's the first song I thought of. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Cast down every idol. Cast out every foe. Now wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow, whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Now wash me. I would be poured out as wine upon the altar for you. I would be broken as bread to feed the hungry. I would be so song right there. You know, we can do things, say, well, I'll try this. If it doesn't work, I'll retreat, you know, and I'll do something else. When you pour that wine out, it's, it's gone. It's done. <clears throat> what else? When we walk with the Lord, in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. 
one of those do you want? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me down to lie. In pastures green, he leadeth me the quiet waters by. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. I found so I found it so he leadeth me by day and by night where living waters flow hey, why don't you be seated and we'll have the ushers take the offering and we'll sing one more one more song while they're doing that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Appreciate those songs and your singing, such beautiful singing and wonderful songs of commitment and worship. I'd like to continue on with this thought, the way of healing, reconciliation, and restoration. I like the word healing, it feels good. To know that there's healing, that's such a wonderful encouragement, such a blessed thing. There are times, though, that we need to recognize that I have been the cause of someone else's hurt. My words have caused someone to stumble. My actions have been hurtful to someone else. And what is the way forward then? What is our responsibility? The way of reconciliation. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Matthew 
These are the words of Jesus from what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sorry, Matthew 5. Not Matthew 6, Matthew 5. Beginning to read in verse 21. It says here, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Rekha shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, there's that altar again, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. The way of reconciliation. Here in verses 21 and 22, Jesus makes it clear that there is a connection between anger, and murder. Why does Jesus equate those two? This was a revelation to the people in Jesus' day because in the Old Testament, as long as you didn't kill someone, you weren't guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. But now he's saying, in essence, if you hate someone, you've broken the sixth commandment. How could Jesus say such a thing? How could that even be true? Are they the same? Are they? How are they the same? Okay. Okay. And what's the what's the, the similarity? What's the sameness? You're right, that's a difference, but what's the sameness? Mm-hmm. Have the same root. The same emotion that causes someone to murder is also what causes someone to hate. You see that? Jesus said, if we hate someone, it's the same as if we murdered them and we're in danger of hellfire. Serious words, heavy words. Have you ever gotten angry? I have. Am I guilty? Indeed I am. I've broken the sixth commandment. I've never killed anyone, but I've been angry. Jesus said, it's the same thing. Same thing. In this context, he says, therefore, because anger and murder are the same thing, because it has the same root, because it has the same emotion, because it does the same damage, in a figurative sense, if not literal, because of that, if you bring to the alt- your gift to the altar and there remember that someone has ought against you, and there remember that, oh, I have caused someone to hurt. You follow what he's saying here? Who becomes responsible in this situation? Who becomes responsible? 
The offended person? Who's Jesus speaking to here? The offended person or the offender? The offender. Jesus makes the offender responsible. And so what he's saying is that when I cause hurt to someone else, when I cause a source of, when I become a source of grief or disappointment to someone else, I'm responsible. And when I come to the altar, my personal altar, and I want to worship God and find healing for my hurts, and I remember, oh, I've hurt someone else. You see what he's talking about here? There is a way of healing. We find healing in worship. There's also a way of reconciliation. See, this is coming at it from the other angle now. When someone hurts us, yes, we need to forgive them and leave them in the hands of God. But when we hurt someone else, then we become responsible to take the initiative and go forward and act on it and reconcile, find reconciliation, do whatever is necessary. In fact, it gives us several steps here. I want to talk about anger a little bit, though, first. I don't know how you are, but usually I don't think of myself as an angry person. Oh, when I was a teenager, yes, I remember I'd lose my temper and get angry at my brothers and get angry at people in life around me, and I'd really rage sometimes. But, you know, that was long in the past. I don't get angry anymore. Well, the reality is I've learned to hide it somewhat. I remember a conversation I was having with one of our older children. And uh, it was a challenging conversation because it wasn't going the way it should have been going. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, She wasn't cooperating. She wasn't following my train of thought. I wasn't able to take her where I wanted to go. And so the longer the conversation went, the louder my voice became and, you know, the more intense I became. And she said, Dad, are you getting angry? No, I'm not angry. And I knew I'd failed. Yeah. Anger's a problem. It's a problem. Maybe men have a bigger problem with it than than women. I don't know. But anger is something that we deal with and we have to find resolutions for because anger is so damaging. The victims of anger are damaged. Their security is threatened. Their their peace, you know, their... uh, Anger causes hurt, fear, and abuse in our victims. Anger destroys a person's self-worth. Anger will scar people for life. You've all talked to people that would say, my father used to be angry with me, and they never forgot it. You know, anger is so damaging. And it's something that probably most of us, maybe all of us, are guilty of it some way or other in greater or lesser degrees. And it hurts people. So we need to ask for forgiveness. We need to humble ourselves and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I was angry. And I think it's important when we ask for forgiveness, especially in anger, but anything, it's important to remember that we do two things. First of all, we recognize and confess what we did. Uh, I hit you. I took advantage of you. I was wrong. But we also 
that we recognize why we did it. I hit you because I was angry at you. I failed in pornography because I have lust in my heart. Yeah. You see, I think it's important when we confess our sins to confess not only what we did, but why we did them. That's called complete repentance. Are you with me? Our hearts are evil. They're wicked. They're carnal. Our hearts outside of the power of God will take us to hell. And we need to recognize that before God and for other people. What I did to you was wrong and it's because of my evil heart. And be specific in what evil was in there. That is so freeing and so cleansing. When I confess, when we confess what's in there, then it's all out. We're not hiding anything anymore. And God can cleanse it and transform it. And we can truly, truly be changed and transformed. I think sometimes, I think why some people just struggle on and on sometimes with issues in their life is because of incomplete repentance. They haven't fully come to the end of themselves as what they did and why they did it. We have to, we have to as I say, recognize why, what's in our heart and be specific about it. It's evil and God knows it and people around us know it. And we only do ourselves a disservice if we ourselves don't admit it and confess it. And so especially in this area of anger, when we, when we find ourselves getting angry with our children, with people around us, with circumstances, we need to recognize that, yes, I'm angry and I'm causing damage and I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I think there's a lot of things we could discuss about anger that won't necessarily this morning. For example, does righteous anger exist in the new kingdom? Jesus was angry, we say, when he cast out the buyers and sellers in the temple courtyard. Moses was angry when he threw down the, the, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments and broke the tables of stone. You know, and we would say, well, that was righteous anger. And so we give ourselves grounds for righteous anger. But here's a question, and I don't know if I have the answer. Does righteous anger exist in the new covenant? Jesus was still in the old covenant when he expressed that anger and cleaned out the temple. But later on, he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. I'm not sure if righteous anger even exists in the new covenant. I haven't found it in the Bible, but I, that's something I need to need more teaching on myself. So that's one area. Another Another question that we could discuss and talk about and won't necessarily hear, is anger and temper the same thing or is it different? Be that as it may, we're talking about how we hurt people when we get angry. And so it says in verse 23, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remembers that thy breath hath ought against thee, tells us four things, four things. Number one, verse 24, leave there thy gift before the altar. Number two, go thy way. Number three, first be reconciled to thy brother. And number four, then come and offer thy gift. Leave there thy gift before the altar. What does that tell us? What is that doing? When we come to the altar, you know, picture yourself coming to an altar with a gift. And you remember, oh, there's someone is hurting because what I have done and said. And so I leave the altar. That means I change. I repent. Repentance is we change direction. You come to the altar and you, you change your direction. Go back again. Go back to where you did the hurt. Go back to where the, the deed was done. 
It doesn't help to hope that it goes away. It doesn't help to cover it over. It doesn't help to uh, ignore it and hope that people will forget it. That doesn't help. It says, leave your gift and leave your gift. That means, and then go thy way. That means go back. Go back to where it happened. Go back and pursue that person that was hurt because of what you did and be reconciled to him. If, if we come to the altar with a in this way and, and we're not willing to go back and make things right, it's like giving a soiled gift to God. It's like giving a bag of dirty diapers to a new mother. Would you do that? No, that's repulsive. You'd never do that. That's horrible. You don't do that kind of thing. You give clean, new diapers, new pampers, right? But that's what we do to God. If we come to Him and we're not willing to go back and make things right where we have done wrong, we're giving Him a soiled gift and He, has, he wants no part of it. He says, leave your gift and go. Years ago, our Amish neighbor would come and use our telephone. You may understand and recognize the Amish culture. They, at least back then especially, didn't have their own telephones. This is 45 years ago. And so our Amish neighbor would come and use our telephone. And he was welcome to do that. Uh, and when he would come, he would always leave a dime. That dates me, of course. That goes back before there were cell phones and computers and such like. So he would always leave a dime for, for using the telephone. But when he left, I recognize he came from the barn. And we didn't live on a farm. He came in and sat in the chair, and when he left, guess what the chair smelled like? Even the dime he left there, it smelled like the barn. We were glad for the dime, but the smell, we could have done without that. In a much greater way, when we come to God with our gift at the personal altar, we want to worship him. But we remember, oh, there's someone that is hurting, something I've done, and we're not willing to go back and make it right. It's the same as bringing a soiled gift to God. It doesn't please him. It doesn't warm his heart. He tells us, leave our gift and go. Go our way. Go thy way. Notice he said, thy way. There's something about that word thy that's important here. Thy means me, not God. Go thy way. And notice, I'm the one that brought me to this point. I'm the one that committed that deed. I'm the one that did the hurt. So now it's my responsibility to go back my way and make it right. Does that make any sense? Go thy way. Not someone else's way. You don't blame someone else. It's me. It's my. It's thy. It's personal. Go thy way and make it right. <clears throat> and there's a sense where I think he's telling us to uh, take responsibility for our deed. Take responsibility for what happened. And, and be, be clear about it. Say, yes, I'm responsible. I'm the one that did this. Be honest. Simply be honest. Go thy way. Then thirdly, he says, first be reconciled to thy brother. And don't say, if I was wrong, will you forgive me? Forget that little word, if. If you say to someone, oh, yeah, I'm feeling bad and I realize that things aren't the way they should be and but if, if I was wrong, would you forgive me? What are you saying to that person? You're not really admitting anything. All you're saying is that, okay, you think I was wrong, and so if you think I was wrong, can you forgive me? 
That's not, that's not repentance. That's not humility. That's not coming and saying, I was wrong, I'm taking responsibility. That's putting responsibility in someone else. Don't say, if I was wrong. Say, I was wrong. And I'm sorry. I was angry. I hated you. Yeah. Hatred. That sounds like an awful thing to say. I hated you. And yet, when I say evil things about you, that's the root of it, right? It's hatred. I hate you. And when we're honest, as caustic as it might be, it's also cleansing. It's healing. It brings reconciliation. I remember the shame. Something I'd done against a brother that I love very much, a brother in the church. And later on I realized what I'd done. And God gave me the grace. I went back to him. And I, and I, I wanted to be reconciled. I said, brother, how did that feel to you when I did that? How did that feel when I did that? He just cried. He just cried. Because it hurt so deeply. And I cried with him. Because I began to, to feel what he felt by God's grace. I'm ashamed of it. But by God's grace, God enabled me to go back and be reconciled to him again. It takes humility. The problem with humility is that it's so humiliating. We don't like it. And yet humility is the only way. It's the only way. <clears throat> it says thirdly here, be reconciled. Do whatever is necessary to be reconciled. Now maybe he has no interest in being reconciled. But at least if you do your part in, in, humili in humbling yourself and going to him and recognizing that what you have done to him was wrong and you, you are asking no conditions, you're simply without condition confessing what you've done. Then you're doing your part. And another thing I caution you to say, and, and again, I'm open to this, I don't find anywhere in the Bible that instructs us to ask anyone for forgiveness. We are to extend forgiveness, but I'm not sure that we're supposed to ask each other to forgiveness. Rather, I think, I think that the teaching is that we should ask each other for mercy. The parable there in Matthew um, 18 of the two servants, the one owed his, his master a huge amount of money. And he said to his master, he said, just please be patient, someday I'll pay you everything. His master knew he would never live long enough to pay it all. And so he forgave him the whole thing. That same servant went out and found another servant of his that owed him just a small amount. And he said, pay me what you owe. And the, the master, that servant said the same thing that he had said to the master. He said, please give me time and I'll pay it. I'll take care of it. But this first servant had no mercy. He cast him in the prison. And then the master heard about what the first servant had done. And he scolded him. He said, I forgave you all that debt. And what that first servant did not understand was mercy. He didn't understand mercy. I think God would have us ask mercy of each other rather than forgiveness. Maybe it's a fine theological point. And I, I'm open to whatever you have on that. But I, uh, I don't find that, that we're supposed to ask each other for forgiveness. See, here's how it works. We're, we're equals, in a sense. You know, we, we appreciate each other, we love each other, we relate to each other, more or less as equals. And then I come along and do something against you. And I hurt you very deeply. And then in your eyes, I'm down here. You follow that? I'm no longer up here with you. I'm down here now. 
So then I come to my end of myself and I repent and I say, I come to you and says, will you forgive me? And I'm asking you to put up here again. And you might say, well, give me some time. It hurts. Or you might say, no, I can't forgive you yet. And then I go and say, well, I asked for forgiveness, so I've done my part, right? Have you heard that expression before? That's an error. It's an error. It's arrogant for me to ask you, to expect you to restore me back to that position in your life again. It's arrogant. It's righteous and humble to say, I was wrong. Will you have mercy on me? And I keep myself down here in your eyes. And then at your will, at your discretion, as God gives you healing, then you can restore me. But for me to expect you to restore me, that's something God has to do in your heart and life. Does that make any sense? <clears throat> this business of reconciliation is a process of humbling and being humbled. It's a, it's a work of humility in our lives. It says here, first of all, leave your gift before the altar, then go your way, and then be reconciled to their brother, and then come and offer thy gift. There is a way of reconciliation. And when we have caused hurt, and done the damage. It's our responsibility to take the initiative and resolve it. I think there's a lot of work in the kingdom of God could be enhanced if we would practice this principle freely. And I'm not saying you don't. I don't know you people. But I'm thinking of God's people as a whole. You know, I think of church splits, and I think of relationship difficulties, and I think of all kinds of problems we have because of, of broken relationships, uh, difficult, you know... If we would practice this principle, don't you think it'd just make it so much easier for ourselves? <laughs> and the church would grow, and God would be blessed, the kingdom would be strengthened, and the people that don't know Christ would come and say, wow, we want to be a part of this too. But when they come and they discover all these little things we have, big things we have, you know, where we're not really reconciled with each other, I think that causes grief to God. And I would, encourage us, I would encourage us to seek the way of reconciliation. There is a way of healing, yes, in worship. That's the way to deal with our pain. But there's also a way of reconciliation where we extend ourselves and we take initiative ourselves to resolve the things that we are responsible for. I think it's an act of maturity in our part to simply humble ourselves and, and recognize what we've done. <clears throat> I want to point out to you verse 25 here. Notice, notice the progression of severity, of consequences here for unresolved conflict. It says, agree with your adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. That's step one. The judge deliver thee to the officer. Step two. And thou be cast in the prison. You're at the hands of the, uh, the mercy of the jailer. The longer we go with unresolved conflict, the more severe the consequences are. Do you see that? It's not worth it. Beloved, it's not worth it. It's not worth going through a lifetime or any length of time with this kind of baggage hanging on our shoulders. It's not worth it. The consequences only get more and more severe and they only go out further and further. Consider the example of Jacob. He took advantage of Esau. He... Uh, <coughs> He took advantage of him. 
And Esau was very angry. What did Jacob do? Yeah. And that's what we often do, right? We avoid. We run away. We don't want to face what we've done. So Jacob was away for 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. 20 years. Finally, it's time to come home. When he left, Esau was angry with him. When he comes back, how many people are waiting to meet him? Four hundred armed men. See how the consequences got more severe? Had Jacob resolved his problem before he ever left, he'd have been much better off. Much better off. Now he had four hundred armed men to contend with. No wonder he was desperate there by the brook. No wonder he was crying out to God, You bless me. Because he hadn't resolved his problem. He'd run away from it. And it just came back and it was worse. I remember an evangelist used to live at Farmville, Virginia, John Dan Miller. Some of you may have known him. He gave his personal testimony when he was a young man. I don't know what his circumstance was, but he says he, he wanted to go out and do So he, he went to California. He went and went and got to California. Thought, now he's going to do what he wants to do. He says he stayed in the motel overnight, got up the next morning, looked in the mirror, and guess who came along? John Dan Miller came along. We can't run away from our problems. They follow us everywhere we go. And they just get worse. And so I would encourage us to face our problems and resolve them. And when we've hurt someone, let's pursue that person and resolve that hurt for him. Let's be reconciled to that person. Let's leave a sweet taste in that person's mouth. I've been a salesman from time to time in different times of my life. One of the things we learn as salesmen is you always want to leave a sweet taste in the person's mouth when you leave. So that when he sees you again, he's glad to see you. Or if you perform a service, some of you, you have businesses and you, you perform work for other people in the public. You know, maybe you're a landscaper, maybe you're, you perform a, a, you're a construction uh, worker, you know, you, you do construction. But whatever, you, you, you perform services for other people, you always want to leave them happy, right? You want to leave them with a sweet taste in their mouth. So that when they see you again, they're glad to see you and buy from you again, right? How much greater that principle works in the church. That we should leave a sweet taste in each other's mouth. And when there's bitterness there, that we do whatever steps are necessary to resolve that in each other's lives. The way of reconciliation. Also, I want to look at the way of restoration. Why don't we stand just for a few minutes? Um, uh, let's sing a song. You have a song for us, quickly, Merle, while we just stand and... and uh... Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is 
Find us together, Lord, find us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together. may be seated. Very appropriate song. I appreciate that. I'd like to speak yet from Galatians 6. The way of restoration. Spoke about the way of healing, then the way of reconciliation, and now the way of restoration. Galatians 6. And this becomes both a a personal responsibility and a corporate one, where we as individuals are called to be ambassadors for Christ, bringing healing in a broken world. And we as a church are also called to bring restoration and peace to each other and to the church. Galatians 6, starting to read in verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, you who are mature, Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let, it, let every man prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Five things here. Five, not steps necessarily, maybe steps, but five different ideas here on restoration. It says, if a man be overtaken in a fault. And that happens, doesn't it? People make mistakes. They're overtaken in a fault. You know, they can be a large, a big fault, can be a little one, if there is such a thing. You know, but there's people, people have faults, and they make mistakes, and they have failures, and they need to be addressed. We can't just let it go and say, well, we hope it goes away. No, when there's a fault, when there's sin in the church, it must be dealt with. It must be... uh, Resolved in some kind of, in, in, according to God's ways here. So it says, if a man be overtaken of the fault, first step is, ye which are spiritual, the mature ones, the mature ones. Are you mature? Are you spiritual mature? Then it's your responsibility to reach out and bring restoration to people around you. First of all, it says, restore him. I think this speaks of the goal of, for one thing, of church discipline. You know, when, when someone falls into sin in the church and we, we need to deal with that sin The goal is not punitive punishment or vengeance in and of itself. The goal is restoration. To restore that person to fellowship, to restore him to right standing with God, to restore him to his peace in his heart. Restoration, not revenge. Restore such an one. In in 2 Thessalonians 3.15, it says, Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There's a difference. If we look at somebody as an enemy, he's down here below us. If we look at somebody as a brother, he's unequal with us. And we want to help him. We love him and we want to help him. And we're concerned for his salvation. We're concerned about the damage that's happening in his life. We care about him. Just like if we cut our finger, we're going to take care of that finger until it's restored. We're not going to ignore it. We're going to take good care of it and work with it so that it comes back to full use in our bodies again. And so it is with our brother when he falls into sin, he needs, he's in a fault. 
We, need, we want to restore. That's the goal, is to restore, to bring him back to full fellowship and full function again. <clears throat> and it says we should do it in the spirit of meekness, considering ourselves, lest we also are tempted. And what it's telling us there is that we ourselves have the same propensity to failure as that brother has. We may end up being and doing exactly the same thing as what he did. And so it's important when we when we uh, work at restoring someone, that we're objective, not subjective. And that we're, we, we, we cool our intensity. You know, what, what he did may be something really hurtful, really damaging. And it, it may cause us to have intense feelings about him or about the situation. But I think if, we're, if, we want to, if our goal is, is restoration, our goal is healing, then we need to be objective, and we need to cool down our intensity and speak in an even tone, not in an intense, uh, uh, intense, uh, fired-up tone, if you know what I'm trying to say. It means being objective. Controlled strength, that's another definition for meekness, or simply cooling the intensity of our emotions. That's meekness. And realizing that I myself could be guilty of the same thing even though maybe I'm not right now, it could happen to me. And so I need to, to look at him in the same way that I want him to look at me when I'm in his, when, when, if I'm ever in his situation where I've been in a fault or failed. So first of all, our goal is to restore. Secondly, it says, bear you one another's burdens. What does it mean to bear somebody else's burdens? It, it tells us that Jesus bore our sins on the cross. What, did, what does that mean? What did he do for us? He bore our sins. That means he went to the cross as though he, as though he did what we did. Even though he didn't. He did not. It means he bore what we did. He took what we did on himself and saying, yes, I take the responsibility for that. He bore our sins. And so it says here, we are to bear one another's burdens. That means to take up the man that's, been, that's a fault, that's, that's in a fault. We need to bear his burden. We need to uh, fight his battle with him, not distance ourselves or or set him to the side. We need to involve ourselves in his life. We need to pursue him. We need to, to carry his burden with him and for him. One reason he's in a fall is because the burden has become too heavy. He's become discouraged. Something has happened. It's, it's overwhelmed him and he's in a fall. We need to bear that burden so he can come back again. I have a tendency, I'll say to my son's, my sons in particular, my children as a whole, I say, whenever you want to talk, come. You know, I'm available. Just come talk. I, I, I want you to talk, and I just, just come. It's like I hang out my shingle. You know, the doctor is in. I'm ready to, for appointments. Do you think they ever come? No. Nah. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for me to go to them and bear their burden with them. I remember thinking some of the, early on, some of the situations our, our children were dealing with and thinking, 
you know, I, I think he even told them that, uh, yeah, it's good that you struggle, but it'll be okay. You know, I, I struggle with the same thing you did, and it came through, and it, it'll be all right. Just, just, you know, keep working through it, and it's going to be okay. Do you think that was any kind of a comfort to them? Not at all. That's not what they... They didn't need me telling them that, yeah, I did that too, and now I'm okay. What they wanted me was to get in the trenches and fight the battle with them. To get down and dirty where they were. To get mud in my boots like they had mud in their boots. To get in the same trench and fight against the battle against the same enemy. Instead of being enemies against each other, to be together fighting their enemies. Being, bearing with them, bearing their burden with them. I think it means going one-on-one, like it says in Matthew 18. If a brother trespasses against you, go to him and talk to him, one-on-one. Bear his burden. Philippians 2 tells us how Christ entered into our struggles. And that's how we need to do when we bear each other's burdens. Verse 4, Philippians 2, verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not Robert to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus entered into our experience. Here's a, here's a way to illustrate it. Let's say a mosquito is buzzing around you. And normally you would, you know, swat the mosquito and get rid of it. But for, for one time you say, you know what? That poor mosquito has no idea what kind of a fella he is. I want to help him. And so you become a mosquito. Would you do that? That's what Jesus did for us. He looked at us and he said, those people don't know how bad they are. They don't know how great their deliverance could be. They don't know that. So I'm going to become like them. I'm going to be one of them. I'm going to enter into their struggles. It tells us that Jesus was tempted at all points just like we are. Every way that we're tempted, he was tempted. He knows exactly what it's like to be a human being. He knows all the struggles, all the difficulties. He knows it all. He became a mosquito in a figurative sense. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Romans 15.1 says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. John 13, 14 says, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Feet washing is a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. A lot of symbolism there. We're saying, where I want to bear your burden with you. I want to share in your experience. I want to enter into your experiences and help you along life's way. That's a beautiful thing. It's called the way of restoration. It's so needed in the church, in our communities, in our families. Verse 3 here, he says, we should think of ourselves, we should not think ourselves to be something. This is another point in being a restorer. We need to be humility. We need to have humility. We need to have a repentant attitude. We need to see ourselves for who we are. Nothing better than the person we're restoring. If we're trying to restore someone from a level up here, we won't get it done. But if we go down on their level, 
and restore them from where they are, then we can be effective. Several years ago, I was called for jury duty. In the state of Pennsylvania, you have to show up. And so I reported. And of course, they ask a lot of questions and so on. And, and uh, you eventually refuse. I mean, uh, principles of not restanding, uh, principles of non-resistance and so on. Uh, but what struck me in that experience, I was there for three days uh, and uh, sequestered there in the courthouse. And the, the, the case, there were three cases before the potential jurors, or they were all sex abuse cases. And so I w the thought struck me one day as I was sitting there thinking about this. I thought, so what if I would be on the jury and I would be casting judgment on this man that took advantage of this girl? What he did was sin. What he did was wrong. It was a crime. It needs to be punished. But here I am sitting in judgment of him. And the thought came to me. Jesus said, if we look at a woman to lust after her, we've committed adultery in our heart. This man committed adultery. And I said to myself, have I ever committed adultery in my heart? Yes. I repented. But yes, I'm guilty. And so here I'd be sitting in judgment of someone that's guilty of the same thing I am. You get what I'm saying? And we restore someone we need to be on their level and recognize that I could be guilty of exactly the same thing, and I indeed am guilty of exactly the same thing. So we want to be restored together. The way of restoration. So powerful. We need to see ourselves for who we are. We're nothing outside of God. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians thirteen five says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. In other words, I'm a reprobate outside of Jesus Christ. And maybe this person that has, has come into a fault, he's a reprobate. He's a sinner. He's fallen from grace. He's fallen from God. And yet that's exactly where I am outside of Jesus Christ. So I'm no better than he. I have nothing to offer except Jesus Christ. The way of restoration it says in verse 4, let every man prove his own work. What that's teaching us is that whatever plan we, we want to, whatever plan of restoration we want to impose on him, we need to impose on ourselves. Whatever requirements we want to put him through, we need to put ourselves through. Because we need the same thing. We're just in this together. And finally, he says, every man shall bear his own burden. And what that teaches us is that every man is responsible for what he's done. And that's true of the man that is in, is in a fault. That's true of us ourselves who are seeking to restore. We're all responsible for our own, our own history, our own things we've done. And we need to embrace our history and say, yes, there's a part of me in the past there that I'm not proud of. I'm ashamed of it. Let's not deny our history. Let's not deny our humanity, our sinfulness, because we are sinners. And we have sin. And when we're honest about that with ourselves and with each other, it helps us to be restorers for each other because it helps us realize that there's really, we're in this together. There's a man taken in the fault and we want to restore him. But really, we're all in this together. It's, it's, a, it's a thing where we're working at it together. It's not him versus us. It's all of us together. You see the difference? The way of restoration. 
you've been a very good audience, and I commend you for your, your attentiveness. I appreciate it very much. <clears throat> so we talked about the way of healing, the way of reconciliation, and the way of restoration. I want you to think about, is God asking you to make some kind of amendment in your life? Is he calling you to something? Are you willing to make that call? Why don't we stand? And I just want to, want to ask you that and think about in your own heart, what is God asking me to do? Is he asking me to make some changes? Is he asking me to go talk to someone and resolve a conflict that I've caused? Is, is he asking me to embrace the pain and find healing in embracing the pain? Is he asking me to be a restorer of some brother or sister that needs restoration? What is he asking me to do? In your heart, just tell God you're willing to do that. Why don't we bow our heads for prayer? Oh God, I pray that you would lead us and call us to yourself. Help us to be restorers. Help us to be reconcilers. Help us to experience healing. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to, to follow this way, the way of healing and reconciliation and restoration. O oh God, call us to make amendments and changes in our lives and help us to be willing to make those changes. O oh God, I pray for everyone here this morning. Make us more like you. Make us fit for your kingdom. And make us the kind of people you want us to be. We confess our, our undoneness. We confess our our sin, we confess that we have failed you in different ways. And we just come to you asking for mercy, pleading for your mercy. And we ask that you would restore us and cleanse us and wash us with the blood of Jesus and help us as a body of believers to be cohesive and harmonious and to tell the world through our love for each other and through our, our personal lives uh, that Jesus is real. Help us, Father, to be restores in our community and in our families, in our schools, in our homes, in our churches, whatever, wherever, whatever we represent. Help us, Lord, to be your vessels in this world so that this world will be a better place and more godly because of us having been here. We give ourselves to you and ask for your kind direction and blessing in our lives. We pray this in your name. Keep your heads bowed. And I just want you to, if, if you've made a commitment to God, if you've made a specific commitment, I want you to just raise your hand up and down. And I want you to do that so that it establishes something in your heart and life. Thank you. God bless you. It's important that we make commitments. If we make specific commitments, it helps us to follow them. They become high points in our life. So God bless you for those commitments. And God give you much grace and wisdom in following through in those commitments. The Holy Spirit will remind you of the commitments you've made. And he'll be with you. Heavenly Father, I just pray for those who have made specific commitments. Help them to remember those commitments and to follow through with them. And I pray that together we would serve you faithfully. We would be the people you want us to be. Bless each father and mother here this morning. Give them wisdom and understanding and teaching and training their children to walk in your footsteps. Bless each grandparent. Bless each single person. Lord, bless each child here today. I pray that all of us together would be faithful and effective in the work of the kingdom, doing what you've called us to do. We give you honor, glory, and praise. Lord, we love you. You're the almighty. You're high and holy. You're awesome. You're unique. You're the only one. God, you're, you're, you're majestic. You're, you're the, the highest. You're Lord of lords and King of kings. Oh God, we love you and want to serve you with all of our hearts here today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.